Turning now to Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 12. We're reading the first half of this chapter. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, Roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, the belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So shall you eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, On the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, that which everyone must eat. That only may be prepared for you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have made provision for your people. 
Your people are sinful. Your people are in need. Your people are enslaved. And you make perfect provision for them. How we pray that you would open our eyes to see this provision this evening. That we would understand something of this Passover lamb that you have portrayed for us. We ask, Lord, that we would see him and receive him in faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We come in our study in Exodus to chapter 12 now. This is one of the richest, densest, and indeed longest of the chapters of Exodus. So we, we shall not be going through the whole thing, attempting to cover it in a single night that would not really do it justice. But instead we'll focus on this first portion and particularly on the topic of the Lamb, the Passover Lamb. That is our title. Now, thus far, we have spoken of the the departure, the imminent departure of the people of Israel. We have spoken of their enslavement and their imminent freedom from slavery. We even spoke of the plunder that the Lord in his goodness and abundance was going to give them so that they were not going to leave Egypt empty-handed, but rather laden with gold and silver and precious gems. But yet, we have not spoken about cost. But friends... In any salvation, there must be cost. There will certainly be cost involved. I was just reminded of the situation of the hurricane in America, Hurricane Matthew, and uh, there was a Marine Expeditionary Unit sent to go help, and uh, I'm reminded of the mere cost and fuel simply in doing it. Even if they had nothing better to do in the whole world and they just were at liberty to go do it and you didn't consider the salaries of anyone involved, but the mere cost of fuel... My friends who are pilots carry credit cards that they put $100,000 at a time every time they land to buy fuel for their aircraft. There is cost even in that sort of rescue. But friends, there is cost involved in the exodus, in the movement from enslavement to, to freedom, in the movement from this land of Egypt under Pharaoh who is a picture of Satan to the, the promised land which is a picture of heaven there's going to be cost. And tonight we begin to think of this in the shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God. Now this subject is introduced to us in the first few verses in Exodus chapter 12. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the be- your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day Of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And of course, we know what's going to happen to this lamb. As indeed, soon enough, as the ceremonial laws instituted, would happen to many, many more lambs thereafter. Not only every single year would there be the Passover lamb, one per household, put to death, his blood shed, and body broken, indeed burned with fire. But there would be many, many lambs slain on the Temple Mount in the years to come. And eventually we come then to the great subject of all of this, the great Lamb of God in Christ, because that's what this is about. Everything we find in Exodus is typical of the work of redemption, and if if we look at some parts that are a bit superficial, or maybe not superficial, but at least ancillary to the main thing, all of it's 
in one way or another, typical, portraying the work of salvation, this is the center of it. This right here, the the death of the Passover lamb, that is the center of what all this is pointing us to, that if we are in a situation of slavery, or if we are in a situation of being under Satan and wishing to be set free, there is a cost to to be born, and that cost demands the shedding of innocent blood of the Lamb of God, who is Christ. Hebrews 11.28 says this, By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Speaking, of course, of Moses' great act of faith as he kept this Passover. And in all of this work, it is not merely the shedding of blood. It is not merely that there is some cost. And then, you know, maybe they have ten lambs. And one of them has to die in order to secure their freedom. That's not what is being said here. So much as an act of faith in receiving the provision that God has made for them. The good provision that God has made. That the innocent lamb should have its, its, its blood shed in order that they might be saved. And that is received, you see, by faith. It's an act of faith that they do this work. Well, friends, if you know anything about the gospel, you know I've just summarized the gospel. And I wanted to say that at the very beginning as we consider the Passover lamb so that we never stray from what this is really all about. Okay, so it's the Passover lamb, and there are the three points. Perfect provision, spotless condition, and united people. Perfect provision, spotless condition, united people. So first... Perfect provision. It says now in verse 4, If the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. This is, as it were, a very innocent statement and seemingly having to do with a small detail. But it's once again pointing to the merciful provision of God. He did not impose some blanket and arbitrary requirement upon them, but was providing for the actual situation of his people, the real and actual need. Small families then could band together. It wasn't if there was a very small family. They had to unnecessarily, or maybe they couldn't even afford in some sense to, 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 to have this lamb, but rather they could band together to have a Passover lamb. But that minor detail actually points us to the larger principle that God is making a provision for the people of Israel. And that provision will not be superfluous. That provision will not be extraneous. It is precisely in accordance with every man's need. Every man, woman, and child's need. There needed to be, you see, this lamb for these families. There had to be a provision for identification, okay? The reason why this, as we read in the chapter, the reason why God is giving them this provision is because the angel is going to come that night and he is going to put to death the firstborn of all of the people. Now, we know this was not the first. Please, if you've just joined us, don't think this is the first thing that God has done. God began with some minor and seemingly harmless things like turning the blood in, into the water into blood and then returned it back after Pharaoh relented for a moment. And he did that the first time. 
and then a slightly more serious one, the second, slightly more serious, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth time. And thus far, he's not laid a hand on the person of any of the oppressors and persecutors of his people, because that's what the Egyptians are, the oppressors and the persecutors of God's people. He is seeking to bring them into to freedom, and, and they are standing in their way. Pharaoh has been asked nicely many times, and he refuses and hardens his heart. And now, now he is going to do this one last great sign which he says, I'm telling you, after this sign, they will positively drive you out of the land of Egypt, and they would. The death of the firstborn. And this angel is going to come, and he's going to put to death every last firstborn in the land, except... For those who have a provision made for them. And that provision is that their lintels, the doorposts of their house, are marked with the blood of the lamb on them. And these he would pass over. This is a provision, first of all, for identification as God's people. God's people. He wasn't going to do this, you see, for the, for he, he wasn't instructed, the, the angel is not coming on a mission to destroy those who, uh, who are in, in unity and in communion with and who have the, the covenant sign and seal upon them of the people of God. He was sent to, to do this for the Egyptians. Indeed, it seems to me that anyone who is obedient to this provision, in essence, joining themselves to the people, if an Egyptian were to do this, and if, it, if an Egyptian were to put to death a lamb and to sprinkle its blood and to, to paint it on the doorpost, likewise, they would be spared. And the provision that is needed is this identification of faith, that we believe the word of God. This household, the ones in this household are the ones who believe the word of God has been given to us. And we have before us the, the shed blood of an innocent victim that identifies us as being part of you, and therefore don't put us to death. This provision the Lord made. In verse 7, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Reminder, by the way, it was not just an external provision. Yes, the identification had to all be made, but they also received physically of this lamb. They ate it. God provided for them physically in this sense. And friends, we were reminded in the, 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 uh, the Lord's Supper, there is no lamb there. But rather in receiving the, the body, the broken body and the element of the bread and the shed blood and the element of the wine, we truly receive uh, bodily and physically of this, of this provision for us because we receive spiritually of this salvation. In verse 9, Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire. Its head and its legs and entrails can't be raw. No, it's got to, be, it's got to endure the fire, just as Christ himself had to endure the fires of the wrath of God. And as we consider what Christ's atonement means, and it's hard to wrap our minds and heads around it all, just think of the elements that are to be found even here. It can't be raw. It can't just be boiled with water, but it's got to be roasted in fire as the wrath of, of a holy God came down upon Christ. That's what's being portrayed. And none of it remain until morning. 
What remains of it you shall burn with fire. This is the Lord's Passover. This is the Lord's provision for the people of Israel. And we say, what is the problem here? What is the the threat that is coming upon them? As I say, it's the angel. And sometimes we refer to him as the angel of death. But look very carefully exactly what it says. Now, the, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's just what is said in verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt on the night and will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, man and beast. I am the Lord. And even more so in verse 23. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses and strike you. Now, yes, of course, he was sending his angel to do this work, but it is the Lord himself who is directing his every step. And it is not so much that the destroyer sees and therefore passes over, but the Lord himself sees and makes sure that the destroyer passes over. So this, uh, this provision for us, it identifies with us. It is one who bears the, the flames Um, It is one who nourishes us, all these things dealing with our spiritual need of a a Savior who dies for us. And as I say, it is not merely, uh, Matthew Henry says that it's not merely the shedding of blood that's enough. It's not enough that the blood of the Lamb was shed, but it must be sprinkled, It it must be applied, denoting that the application of the merits of Christ's death must be received. So it is not merely that the blood be shed somewhere and left there, but rather it be applied to the households, the congregations, the the people who believe the word of God. And so it was. Now let me just say again, this perfect provision, sometimes people speak as if Christ were not necessary. They speak as if he were a great teacher. Have you ever heard that? Some people say, you know, well, he came to be our great teacher. Well, he certainly came to teach, but that's not all. If all we need was a teacher, there were teachers that came before him and teachers that came after him. Right? There could have been Paul. Paul would have been fine if all we needed was a teacher. But we needed something more than that. If all we, need was, we needed was an example of godly living, well, others had come before him. You know, Daniel, we, we read from Daniel this morning, and I can't find any place in Daniel where any, any sin was mentioned. Now, I'm sure because the word of God says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He wasn't perfect, but he was not guilty of any notice, notable or public sort of sin at all. He was a good and godly man, a good example for us. And other such men, other such men existed and have been. But no, of course, what we need is a lamb of God who would have his blood shed for us. That's why Christ came. This provision was not extraneous. It was not superfluous. It was perfectly suited to our need as sinners to have an innocent victim die for us. And not just anyone, but the God-man himself. You understand that God did not waste his son. It was not a worthless or superfluous Uh, uh, sacrifice on his part but it was suited perfectly to the need that we as God's people had he is the perfect provision 
Well, so much more could be said, but let us carry on now to, secondly, the spotless condition. Because it says in verse 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish a male of the first year. In fact, that phrase, without blemish, it occurs 52 times in the word of God. Now, in English, we have the without blemish, two words, a, a negative and then a positive attribute. But in the Hebrew, it's just a simple word, a single word, meaning whole, complete, and perfect. Right? In fact, that word is used initially of Satan. Believe it or not, he started out that way. It says in Ezekiel 28, 14, You were the anointed cherub. That's the way God created him. Perfect. Everything that comes from the hand of God is perfect. Please don't think that the way that we encounter people in this world, the way that the, the fallen angels are, is the way that God created them. God didn't create them that way. God created us and God created the angels perfect and without blemish. And so it says of Satan, You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect. And that's the very same word, without blemish, in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. That's the way God created all of his intelligent beings. But that's not the way that they remained. Satan, of course, did not remain but sinned against God and and tempted Adam and Eve. And Adam sinned and all that came from him also have, have sinned, were born sinners Sharing in that guilt and sharing in that, that unfortunate and pervasive um, desire to sin, there is blemish to be found in us now. But this spotless condition, that's the sort of lamb that we need. It's precisely because we're not spotless ourselves, precisely because we're not perfect and whole in our own condition, therefore we need a spotless lamb. Now, what kind of blemishes might there be? Well, in a lamb, any kind of physical deformity, any marring, any, any disfigurement, because God knows that people in their meanness, uh, people in their cheapness, might try to get away with, with sacrificing a lamb that, what, that uh, was maimed in some sort of way, a lamb that was diseased in some sort of way. No, the Lord says, no, I want your, your best. That's typical, of course, of Christ. Christ, our Passover, who was uh, the uh, spotless Lamb of God, was sacrificed for us. 1 Peter 2.21 uh, For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving for us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, and when he suffered he did not threaten. All these things pointing to the sinlessness of Christ, and, and perhaps supremely in Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. There was no blemish to be found in Christ. He was morally perfect. He was, as we were speaking in the logic class, we're speaking of this inductive argument in which every swan that we encounter is white. But what if there's the one black swan? Right? Well, however puzzling that is to philosophers who have written actually books called The Black Swan and other things like that, the exception to the rule, there is one very special exception to the rule that we are all with blemish, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He was the spotless Lamb of God. There was no sin in him whatsoever. He was perfect in all of his ways and never fell from that in the slightest. He was, in fact, impeccable, the word that we use to say that he, not only did he not sin, he was, it was impossible that he should sin. In that his human nature was perfectly united to his divine nature. That's what's so beautiful about this spotless Lamb of God. How could he be so? Well, he did not take on fallen human nature, but he took on, or rather, he, he, uh, not sinful human nature. He took on, yes, our fallen condition, but it was all without sin. United to the eternal God in the second person, and he could, did not and could not sin. He was without blemish. And by the way, he was also in his prime, because the, the Lamb of God, it says in verse 5, was to be a male of the first year. What's the point? What's the difference? Who cares how old the lamb is? Well, the farmers, if there are any among us, would know that the old lambs that are about ready to go anyways, they're not very valuable, uh, and neither are the very young ones. Okay, The ones that fetch the highest price at the market would be like this, of their first year. And we are reminded that Christ uh, was cut down in the very prime of his life. You know, we say sometimes when someone who is in his youth, someone of great promise, dies in maybe his 30s or early 40s, and we say, oh, what a terrible waste. All the life before him, there in his prime, who knew what he could have accomplished and all the rest of it. Friends, so much more so with Christ. Died, we don't know the exact age. We assume in his early to middle 30s, and it truly was a waste if that was all it was. But we know that it was the determined purpose of God that he did not live a full life. It needed to be, indeed, in some sense, a waste. Not that it was an utter waste, but rather that his life in his prime of life was used for the purpose of securing salvation for his people. He was not merely a spotless lamb, but he was a lamb in the prime of his life, One that had the greatest value. There's no way that you could add anything to the value of Christ. Okay, Had you added 20 years to his life, you would have taken away a little bit of his value. Had there been any attribute of that, that he did not share, any aspect of deity that was not part of him, it would have diminished his value. Had he not been in this situation, and of course, any shadow of sin whatsoever would have completely marred and destroyed his value of being our sin bearer, as being the atoning Lamb of God. But no, God so made him that he was utterly perfect for us, a spotless Lamb of God. God gave us a perfect provision. The Lamb himself was in a spotless condition. And thirdly and finally, we should see that the congregation was unified. There was a unified congregation. Because in verse 6 it says this, Now you shall keep it, this is speaking of the Passover, you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now, excuse me. Just a brief point here. To say that they are together in their need and they must therefore be together in their action of killing the Passover lamb. We, we live in a time of great individualism, yes, it's an ism, isn't it, that is taken to its extreme. 
And we rarely think of ourselves as united as, as a group, as, as people. But, beloved, if you are in Christ, truly you are unified. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you are a Christian, we are together. We are as, as one. We have been made to partake of our head, Christ, and we are unified. Because we are unified in our need and we're unified in partaking of the provision that is given to us in Christ. And so it was that in God's provision, it didn't say whenever you feel like it, then you, you sacrifice the Passover lamb. When you're ready, when you're good and ready to do it, then I want you to kill this lamb and spread his blood. Now he says all the congregation is going to do it together. And they're together in that. And let me say, friends, so were the nation of Israel in their action of murdering the Son of God. Okay, even as together they, they put to death the Lamb of God, so it would prove that in, in the course of time that they were unified in their killing of the Son of God. John nineteen fourteen says this, Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? This is a pagan trying to, to check the murderous rage of, of the people of Israel. And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And they proceeded then to do what they by acclaim were demanding for that the, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was to be put to death. They were united in that action. And the Bible makes it clear that as we were united corporately with Adam, our first head, in his sin, that though we were not there, yet we shared in it, there is a, also a sense in which we were corporately with the people in their blood guilt of Christ. Certainly, we know it was our sin that put him there in the first place. We know that much for certain. I think we can be certain also that had we been there, we would have in some way have shared in this. Think about it. All his disciples... One of them betrayed him to death. Another of them denied him with a curse. And the rest of them fled. None of them stood with him. None of them even prayed with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. So let us not think that if we were in that place, that no, we would have stood with him to the bitter end. That's what Peter thought, and he was wrong. And the unbelieving people, well, they cried, crucify him, crucify him. All the people together put their hand on that knife to kill the Passover lamb. They were unified in that. And so in the providence of God, we as a people of God, yes, it is for our sins that the Son was put to death. These people were unified in their need, unified in their reception of the only means to deal with it. And if you are a Christian, then you, yes, you're unified. And your sins bringing to death the Son of God, but also unified in your reception of that provision, which was God's provision for you. It was not our idea that he should, he should be put to death at what we might live. It was God's perfect provision for him. And there is no other. There is no, there is no other provision given to us other than that his blood be shed and his body broken and we receive that in faith. And if we are... A believer, and you know that you are united 
in this common need, in this common reception by faith of the one provision that God has given to us. And I would say, as we move to a close, let me say, consider the simplicity of this provision. Now, I have given just a few aspects of how this Passover lamb relates to the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe we didn't catch all of it, but just think about, think about the situation from the perspective of an Israelite who was back then facing the angel of death. It was going to happen that night. And there is one way given to you to avoid it, and that is simply that you put together the death of this lamb and you put the blood on the doorpost. Yes, there were other things that went along with it, but that was the crux of the matter. Kill the lamb, apply his blood, and you'll be saved. It's simple. And friends, that is precisely the situation with Jesus Christ. It's very simple. It's not a long list of requirements. You know, there are some mystery religions in which there are a hundred different degrees of knowledge and initiation or all the rest of it. It's not like that in the slightest. Christ has died. He, he is, he has died. Christ is dead for you is the way that it's put. And what remains is that his blood be applied by faith. It's all that is required. It's very simple. You simply receive in faith the provision and it's done. What was done very physically, all you said, look, and who wants to live? You want to live? Raise your hand. Okay. Kill the lamb and apply the blood. Who wants to live spiritually now as the angel of death may be at your door? Who wants to live? Here's the lamb. He is dead for you. The Lord Jesus Christ has laid down his life in order that you might live. And all you have to do is receive this completed work in faith. That's the simplicity. And again, consider the perfection of this provision. You know, it's enough. Some are plagued with doubts. Some lack assurance of their salvation. But friends, it is enough. Think about this situation again of these people. They did what was asked of them. them. They received God's provision for them in faith. Maybe some of them went to bed that night. Hope this works. But they had done, they'd, reached, they'd received the, the provision, and they woke up alive. And they left, and they went into the promised land. It was, it was all over. God's provision is enough. Don't need, you don't need to remain in your doubts. Okay? If it's something that you're doing, well, yes, it's a problem. If, if God had said, go find yourself some paint, and if you, if you paint your house white enough then I, maybe I'll pass by. Then you, you ought to be worried. Did I miss a spot? Was the paint good enough? Was, did some insect come in the night and lay an egg somewhere in it that would mar the perfection of my paint job? But no, this is God's work from beginning to end, and the provision is perfect, and you need to believe that it is sufficient. Some of us have great anxieties about things. Do you believe that God's provision is sufficient for you? Please, please do that. Please believe. As your pastor, the best thing that I could possibly do to you is simply to recommend God's own provision for you. And, and some of you seem to stray a little bit from that and forget that the provision is so perfect. What did Jesus Christ himself say? It is finished! 
Didn't seem to be any doubt in his mind. He wasn't wondering whether it was enough. He was absolutely convinced that his sacrifice, his shed blood, his broken body was going to be sufficient. And it was. Do you believe? To know that the provision is utterly sufficient for you no matter what happens to you this week. No matter what happens to you tomorrow. No matter what happens to you in all the remainder of life, it is sufficient. Because the provision is perfect. Thirdly and finally, we should behold the Lamb of God. Yes, he was perfect. Absolutely perfect. And he was in the prime of life. God didn't give us his second best. He gave the absolute best. He was the incarnate son of God. He was cut down with criminals. His blood was shed for crimes he did not commit. Even this one who had shed the blood of the firstborn in Egypt. He allowed his blood to be shed. Do you consider the perfection of such a one for you? Do you worship him? Does it fill you with joy and delight? Does it fill you with wonder and awe as it should? I hope that Christ never ever gets old for us. But rather that the older that we are, the more we are filled with wonder of his perfection and goodness. May the Lord forgive. May you forgive my inadequacies in conveying some of this perfection. But I pray the Holy Spirit would fill us anew with wonder at it nonetheless. Let us pray. Gracious God, we are thankful indeed that you are so good to your people. We who are in such difficulty, we who are in such trouble, as were the people of, of Egypt, your own covenant people, unable to save ourselves, stuck where we are in slavery and sin and darkness. And Lord, you provided a perfect provision, a spotless Lamb of God, one without blemish at all. And Lord, we are thankful for him. Until we pray, Lord, that we'd simply receive him. There is nothing to be added to what was done. We simply receive this provision. And, Lord, if we received it, how we pray that we would rest in him, that we'd rest in our salvation, rest in the provision of the atonement of the Son of God. There's nothing to be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. Lord, we know that he is enough for us. May he be enough for us this week. May we rest entirely upon him and carry out the duties that you give to us in our vocations with joy, knowing our certainty, knowing that, Lord, you have sent your own beloved Son to be our Lamb and that we are saved. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.